Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. The International Solid Waste Association estimates consumption of single-use plastic may have grown 250 to 300 percent in America since the pandemic began. The resurgence of the thin, single-use, truly single-use plastic bags is astonishing. Inc. is concerned New York's plastic bag ban is not being enforced. The law's full implementation was first delayed in February by a court challenge. And then COVID hit. So the 30-day delay became a 60-day delay, then a 90-day delay. The pandemic has led to a lot of confusion about whether it's safe to bring reusable bags into grocery stores. While some stores allow them, others don't. But single-use plastic is also surging in other ways. Deliveries wrapped in plastic have soared. Coffee shops like Starbucks have temporarily stopped filling reusable cups. And some U.S. cities and states suspended or postponed bans on plastic shopping bags. The plastics industry has lobbied for these rollbacks, arguing that single-use plastic is the safest material to protect people from COVID-19. It probably comes as no surprise to you that the pandemic spurred a massive uptick in plastic. If you were here in the U.S., you almost immediately saw it everywhere. Plastic bags back at the grocery store, plastic wrapping on everything, the masks, the gloves. But what you might not have known was just how intentional that was on the part of the industry, just how ready they were to deploy a strategy that would increase the use of plastic. If there's one thing I've learned from covering the fossil fuel industry and its various forms over the last 20 years, it's that they are prepared for absolutely everything. Shell actually invented something called scenario planning back in the late 80s and early 90s. Now all the oil companies do it and lots of other industries too. It's basically what it sounds like, brainstorming all the possible future scenarios and making a plan for each of them. No industry is better at it than the fossil fuel industry, which is why they always seem to have a response ready for everything. When COVID-19 first started to really take hold in the U.S. back in March 2020, I started scouring all my usual sources for evidence of the industry's response. And sure enough, the American Petroleum Institute and the American Fuel and Petrochemical Manufacturers, the two main trade groups for the industry, were immediately meeting with politicians, asking for regulatory rollbacks and other types of support. The API tackled everything from pipeline permitting to emissions regulations, while the AFPM focused on all the rules that would affect the build-out of plastic manufacturing facilities. But they also set their sights on getting rid of something that's been bugging the industry for years. Plastic bag bans. 
As you heard at the top of the episode, there was some concern early on that people might spread COVID by bringing their bags to the grocery store. We just didn't know how the virus was spread at the time. And the industry pounced on that confusion and the fear that accompanied it. And they pushed this idea that plastic bags were somehow safer than reusable bags, that somehow the virus wouldn't live on them. It was sort of a miracle for the industry, right when they were starting to worry that plastic demand would actually not ever be quite what they wanted it to be, here comes a way to increase that demand exponentially. Well, I think what we're seeing is just how much the industry is relying on plastics to, to save it going forward. This is Carol Muffet, president and CEO of the Center for International Environmental Law. You heard from him earlier this season, too. The industry has, on the one hand, been working on an array of regulatory rollbacks on um, working to close down public opposition and public participation in decisions affecting a lot of its operations. But on the plastic side, it's gone still further and is actually seeking to exploit the current crisis to say that the world needs to be using more, not less, plastics. And it's doing this at a time where, again, even before the crisis began, you had major producers of plastics resins acknowledging that the industry's $200 billion investment in infrastructure had been over overly optimistic that that capacity was being overbuilt that that prices for plastic resins and demand for plastic goods were not growing at anywhere near what the industry had been assuming it would i'm amy westervelt and this is drilled we're continuing part one of season six today plastic pipelines if you missed the first two episodes go back and start there Our story today, the industry's COVID strategy. Did it work? Did COVID save plastic? That's coming up after this quick break. Hi, it's Amy here, and I'm excited to tell you about a new podcast from APM Studios and Western Sounds called Ripple. Such a good idea, this show. In the aftermath of major disasters, there is always a swarm of media attention. The public is captivated by breaking news, there's coverage and controversy, and then the cameras and the public just move on. But the stories are not finished. Ripple is a new series investigating the stories we were told were over. In season one, the reporting team traveled hundreds of miles across the Gulf Coast to learn the ongoing effects of the 2010 Deepwater Horizon oil spill, which are still impacting many coastal residents more than a decade later. You can listen now to Ripple wherever you get your podcasts. We heard in episode one of this series that plastic was a way to make up for money that fracking was not making. But there's another side to the explosion of plastics over the past decade. It's the oil industry's escape hatch. 
you know, expiration spend is down 75% from the peak, 75% over 75%. And I don't see it going up from that point. I see it going down. This is Bernard Looney, CEO of BP, talking about peak oil in 2020. So I think life has changed over the last couple of years, but it is important to acknowledge reality. And that's what we've done. Peak oil is the term that's used to talk about this point where global oil demand will take a downward turn and never really bounce back. And oil companies have been seeing that point coming for a while. In their projections and annual reports, they've been talking about a decrease in fossil fuel use in transportation and residential areas. But they've also been talking about this other area where revenues are going to increase petrochemicals, especially plastic. And keep in mind, while we have solar and wind as replacements for fossil fuel energy in homes and cars, there aren't a ton of great replacements for petrochemicals. That's one part of the reason that the industry is banking on them. Here's Kingsmill Bond, an analyst with the nonprofit Carbon Tracker, who's been researching the petrochemical industry over the last few years. Plastics was always like something that you did on the, with, with your oil on the side once you once you use the primary use of oil in, in in transportation and other areas. So it's quite surprising that it's it shot up the agenda and is and, and pretty much as you say, what's happened over the last few years is that all of the other growth drivers of oil have kind of fallen by the wayside. So. Cars used to be one of the four big growth factors, and 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 uh, as cars got more efficient and electric vehicles come into the mix, people have now said, well, you know, even the IEA is now saying actually we probably reached peak demand for oil from cars. Mm-hmm. And then the same thing's starting to happen with trucks. And obviously, um, in in recent months, the uh, COVID crisis has taken the steam out of the you know the third big pillar, which was airlines. And and like petrochemicals has, has become a kind of mantra for the oil industry. That thank goodness for petrochemicals because you know, that's where all the growth lies. And it's quite interesting, if you if you take the data now from BP and, and the IEA, probably the two leading uh, f- forecasters uh, of the entire system, then from our calculations, about half the growth of oil demand in the next 20 years in the IEA numbers is actually from plastics. So plastic is the savior for the fracking guys and the oil guys. That's a lot riding on plastic demand staying high and growing, which is why when COVID hit, it looked like a golden opportunity. Here's Carol Muffet again. So what we're seeing in the face of COVID is the industry trying to exploit this crisis in two very distinct ways. First is to secure additional government investments and additional regulatory rollbacks to make these projects move forward. And the second is the push to exploit the idea of of COVID to argue not only against bans on the single use of disposable plastics that many countries were moving forward with, but also to argue that the world should be wrapping ever more items in plastic packaging in the name of hygiene and, and public safety. And there's a remarkable, there's a remarkable instance of this where you have an industry representative actually fantasizing and i'm using this word very advisedly fantasizing that they'll be able to get the public to wrap bananas and apples in plastic packaging in the name of hygiene and fighting the covid pandemic 
And I think that that is a testament to you know how overly optimistic the industry is about about how it's going to be able to exploit COVID-19 to fill that gap in plastic demand. Trade groups like the AFPM and the American Chemistry Council moved quickly to push out studies to state governors and to the media showing that reusable bags might be COVID spreaders. Governors in some conservative states, Maine, I'm looking at you, actually moved quicker to ban reusable bags at grocery stores and toss plastic bag bans than they did to implement social distancing and masking guidelines. All of those studies were industry-funded, most of them were a decade or more old, and none of them showed anything at all about the coronavirus. One literally looked at a single reusable bag that someone had vomited next to. Solid science there. But the lack of evidence did not stop the industry from succeeding in its goal, at least for a while, which had some environmental advocates worried. The shift away from disposable bags was a hard-won behavioral change. The industry's goal is clearly to reverse a behavioral shift that was starting to really take root and grow. But six months or so into the pandemic, the messaging around plastic bags stopped working so well. Stores started to allow reusable bags again, and it didn't take long for consumers to get back on board with it. The dream of wrapping every piece of fruit in plastic never materialized. The challenge to face and the reason they're likely to fail is that the opposition is coming not only from consumers, but increasingly from the communities who are on the front lines of build-out of plastics, who are working to stop these plants from being built, and increasingly from investors who are increasingly skeptical about about the prospects of sinking money into this industry. Clearly, the industry's goal is to see this opportunity to to trigger a short-term increase in packaging that takes advantage of fear. The problem that they face is that fear is momentary. The pandemic isn't quite over yet, but what the early numbers are telling us is that the industry's COVID strategy did not work. They were able to drive a momentary spike in demand, but as Muffet predicted, it was, in fact, momentary. And according to carbon tracker analyst Kingsmill Bond, although the pandemic drove demand up in some areas, it actually drove it down in others, so much so that it canceled out the increase. The plastic needed for new cars, for example, or planes. And that actually made for an overall decline in demand for plastic. Here's Bond explaining the impacts of that decline. What's the impact on on, on plastic demand? Of of increasing demand uh, for medical plastic, for PPE use and gloves and stuff. And then what's the impact of of lower demand because the economic shock, so we're buying less cars and we can't go to the shop, so we're buying less uh, less clothes. And because you use a thousand times or more plastic in in, in a car to what you use in a mask, the actual impact is to have a 4% decline, they estimate, in plastics demand this year. And that, to state the obvious, you have a 4% decline in demand and a 4% increase in capacity, to, you know, things looking quite, quite ugly. So the industry continued to build out more plastic manufacturing capability, and it anticipated an increase in demand. But instead, there's been a 4% decrease in demand at the same time that we've seen a 4% increase in capacity. 
that's an 8% gap between supply and demand, which is a pretty big gap. The industry, of course, still thinks it's going to close that gap. Do you think that um, even before this pandemic that they are also just sort of convinced in their abilities to create demand where there is none <laughs> that like they just figured that they would that they would find a way i think that is certainly the case and i think it is the case for the very simple reason that for decades that strategy has worked that strategy has been effective for decades this is an industry that has been very good at creating consumer demand creating markets where they didn't exist before for products that people weren't looking for and didn't necessarily need and so it's you know it may come across as overconfidence but it's overconfidence it's been built on decades of an industry effectively exploiting its understandings of consumer behavior for decades, the fossil fuel industry has successfully told one story, that it simply supplies a demand, that you are the one buying and using its products. So if you're worried about the impacts of those products, all you need to do is reduce your consumption. And don't get me wrong, it's absolutely necessary for individuals to reduce their carbon footprints, especially those of us in the global north and especially the wealthiest individuals. But that action, in the absence of regulating supply, will never work because the industry doesn't just respond to demand, it works really hard to generate it. It's a pervasive and it's a corrosive myth. This, this idea that, that oil and gas companies and plastics producers are just, just producing their products because the demand is there, when you look behind that, what you find is in truth these companies have you know very detailed strategies to create the demand, and nowhere is that clearer than in in the context of plastics. You know, there's no other commodity where that that story of we've got we've got a product, we need a market for it is clear, and we're seeing that with the massive build out of new infrastructure for plastics here in the U.S. Not because we need it. There's a glut of plastics on the market. The the there's no excess demand but because there's all of this cheap natural gas. And so the industry builds out this infrastructure and then looks to persuade young people to buy more plastics or increasingly to persuade the global south to buy more plastics, mm -hmm. all while blaming the global south and Asia for the plastics crisis. Mm -hmm. um, I think one of the starkest ironies in our work on plastics has actually been seeing simultaneously Exxon and, and the oil industry and the American Chemistry Council saying, yes, plastics is a problem, but the problem is originating in China and Asia. And on the other hand, finding a speech from a vice president of ExxonMobil delivered in China saying, Asia needs more plastics and we, ExxonMobil, want to help you make them. And for anyone who has worked for as long as I have in the climate context, that story, that blame China story, that blame the individual, blame the consumer story, yeah. is very, very familiar. So what can people do? How are folks like Diane Wilson in Texas and Sharon Levine in Louisiana managing to successfully fight back? And what can their fights tell us about the global push to tackle this problem? That story next time. Next time on Drilled. 
20 million that we put into this co-op was a chance at reviving our communities and I mean it's going to devastate it. I mean I think for a long time we're just going to be playing whack-a-mole with facilities that have already been proposed. Wow okay so there's already 12 other industrial sites in St. James Parish. Right, and several um, more being proposed, like including South Louisiana Methanol, another pet chem facility just downriver from, from Formosa. Drilled is an original production of the Critical Frequency Podcast Network. The show is reported, written, and hosted by me, Amy Westervelt. Our producer this season is Juliana Bradley. Our editor is Julia Ritchie. Our theme song this season is Death Song by B. Beeman. Additional music for the season composed by Elliot Peltzman. Our artwork for the season is done by Matthew Fleming. Our First Amendment attorney is James Wheaton at the First Amendment Project. You can find additional reporting and photos for this season on our Twitter feed at WeAreDrilled or online at DrilledNews.com. If you're a fan of the show, please consider supporting us in two ways. One, if you want to spend some money and get some extra bonus content and early episodes, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash drilled. You can also support us by giving us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps us find new listeners and combat the army of climate denier trolls that are constantly trying to tank our ratings. Thanks for doing that, and we'll see you next week.